6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of Jeremiah, chapter 1. Prophecies and the relevance of these milestones and dates and sieges have enormous significance to you and I as we try to understand what God is doing in Israel today. To understand, you should understand what God was doing in Israel then. So there is a prophetic outline reason for understanding Jeremiah. There's a personal reason for understanding Jeremiah is to understand his walk and his source of energy and, and how he withstood his incredible circumstances. But there's also a national reason to understand Jeremiah, and we'll get to that too. Getting back to Jehoiakim, this 11-year reign of this bad guy, he sponsors idolatry, widespread injustice. He's the inveterate foe of God and his word, and his revolt uh, obviously is unsuccessful and leads to the first siege of Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, Jeremiah, during this time, is persecuted, plotted against, uh, maligned and finally imprisoned. Uh, the king, Jehoiakim, destroys his prophecies. Takes the book, destroys it. It's later replaced. And that may account for some of the reasons why it's not chronological. It's he and Baruch, his scribe and secretary, you know, replace it subsequently. During all these troubles, Jeremiah does not swerve from a commitment before the Lord. He has an unpopular theme. He's, he's a deep, deep-feeling patriot, and yet uh, he has to see his nation sin, refuse to repent, and fall under God's judgment, not heeding his continual impassioned um, admonitions. Jehoiakim uh, dies violently in Jerusalem after his 11-year rule. Um, just as, as Jer Jeremiah predicts, you will predict that, and it, follow, it happens that way. And he's replaced by Jehoiachin, his son. Now, Jehoiachin gives you the additional complication. He is, at least not always guys only reigns three months. I think he also was a teenager, although we're a little not clear on that one. He is also known as Jeconiah, or, and sometimes shows up in um, Jeremiah as Coniah, C-O-N-I-H. Unless it's pointed out to you through a study Bible or something, you'd have no way of following all this, but Jehoiachin or, or Jeconiah is the one that the, Jeremiah also denounces, and in fact, Ultimately, under the Lord's direction, produces a blood curse, and that creates all kinds of messianic line problems that we'll talk about when we get there. Uh, this teenage king, Jehoiachin, Chin, is also a wicked monarch. It's his father's rebellion, even though he, he died violently, but it's his father's rebellion that, he, that he'd started that causes Nebuchadnezzar to siege Jerusalem the second time. Uh, Jeconiah, or Jehoiachin Chin, uh, capitulates. Uh, he's exiled to Babylon along with a lot of nobles. That's when the, the temple is plundered. That's when Ezekiel is also taken captive and, and so forth. And uh, the king, uh, Jehoiachin, is exiled in Babylon for 37 years. He's enslaved in Babylon uh, there. He's finally released by Evil Merodach. That's his name, E-V-I-L hyphen 
Merodach, who's a son and successor to Nebuchadnezzar by then. Belshazzar, in the handwriting of the wall, really wasn't Nebuchadnezzar's son, it was his grandson. So that's confusing because in the, in the old languages, you don't have this great grandson concept. They just have son. Son doesn't necessarily mean adjacent son. It just means successor, see? So, but the immediate successor, Ewa Merodach, and I believe it was his son that is Bel, Belshazzar, the, the guy that is presiding when uh, Cyrus the Persian conquers Babylon. That's Slater, of course, obviously. It's interesting that Ezekiel, when he refers to the king, he refers to Jeconiah, not Zedekiah. When, when Ezekiel is in Babylon, his king, evil though he was, was Jehoiachin. And it's interesting that he makes that reference, not to Zedekiah. That leads us then, when Nebuchadnezzar has the second siege and takes this guy captive, Nebuchadnezzar was a, quite a character. He was um, a kingmaker. He finds a guy by the name of Mataniah, who was also a son of Josiah. Remember, going back, Josiah the good king, all these bad news guys were brothers or half-brothers, but were all sons of Josiah. He finds uh, a son of Josiah. It's a full brother of Eliakim. That's the one whose name was changed to Jehoiakim. He's the uncle of Jehoiachin, the guy that was the, just deported. His uncle is a guy by the name of Mataniah. Nebuchadnezzar changes his name to Zedekiah. Now, if you're not confused by the I thought if it's too simple if I just give you a few things. Now, Zedekiah, we're going to hear a lot about. Zedekiah is the king that um, is installed in the second siege. Doesn't do too well and ends up falling in the third and final siege. Zedekiah is pretty close to Jeremiah. That's the good news. Bad news is he's a weakling, no strength, and he, although he tries to help, it's a cowardly, useless way and doesn't accomplish much. But we're going to hear a lot about Zedekiah. Interestingly enough, this whole business of the son of Josiah and Eliakim and having his name changed over it is confirmed by the Babylonian Chronicles, which are archaeological finds. In fact, the Babylonian Chronicles and the Lashish letters are major finds that give us all this background. It confirms all this stuff. If you're interested in this thing, there is a book published in 1956 by the London Museum called The Chronicles of the Chaldean Kings, 626-556 B.C. in the British Museum by D.J. Weissman. And it's a thorough archaeological confirmation of this whole business that I'm going through. So um, uh, it, we're building this from 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles, essentially, but it's also kind of interesting. There's a lot of archaeological support for the period we're talking about. Um, but getting back to Zedekiah, weak, vacillating, deficient, a puppet of Babylon. Now here's what makes it a mess. He's a puppet of Nebuchadnezzar out of Babylon, but his first string guys in his officials are all pro-Egypt. So even though he's a puppet of Babylon and tries to do what Babylon tells him, his first string fight him. And he's too weak to do anything about it. And so nothing gets done. Because official policy is obviously pro-Babylonian, but his second tier are pro-the Babylonian enemies, namely Egypt. And so that caused it to be a mess. And these officials are the ones, since they're pro-Egypt, when Jeremiah runs around advocating from a theological position a pro-Babylonian view, they, uh, uh, you know, climb all over him. They give him all kinds of problems. So even though King Zedekiah is pro-Babylon, and Jeremiah's message from God is that, hey, the Babylonians are God's instrument. Don't fight them. You're, this is God's way of judging Judah. The second string were pro-Egypt say that's treason, and that's where Jeremiah gets in all these problems that you're going to see.
So Zedekiah is close to Jeremiah, but powerless. He doesn't help much. Uh, in the fourth year of uh, Zedekiah's reign, he plots against Babylon with the kings of Edom, Moab, Ammon, Tyre, and Sidon. Now that's bad company. If you know anything about Israel's history, you know, getting into treaties with Edom of all people, Moab, Ammon, uh, well, Tyre and Sidon, well, it's just, you know, it's a mess. And so they plot. Jeremiah denounces the whole mess, and of course it comes to nothing. In the ninth year, Zedekiah uh, again conspires with Pharaoh Hophra. This is a succeeding Pharaoh with the Egyptian against Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar takes a dim view of this, and so the city falls in the summer of 86. And that's all in 2 Kings 24, 2 Chronicles 36. And Jeremiah will talk a lot about it from chapter 38 through 39. We'll get to that when the time comes. During this period, Jeremiah urges surrender to, to Nebuchadnezzar. Um, the Egyptian forces show up for a while, Babylonians withdraw, but then they come back and they finally level the place. Zedekiah is very, who uh, tries to support uh, Jeremiah, doesn't do anything effective, and Jeremiah's enemies mistreat him badly. And so he's a victim of all of that. But finally, in 586, comes the fall of Jerusalem. It's celebrated to, uh, annually by the Jews on the morning of 9th of Ab. But the year was 586. Now, Zedekiah tries to escape. We're going to discover one of the most interesting prophecies of the Bible because Ezekiel and Jeremiah both prophesy about Zedekiah. And one of them says that um, he will never see the Babylonian captivity, and the other one says that he will die in Babylon. And the taunts are made by the second tier. You guys can't even agree. Can't even get your story straight. Because here's Zedekiah. One guy says he's going to die in Babylon. The other guy says he's never going to see Babylon. Make up your mind, guys. Well, when the fall of Jerusalem occurs, Zedekiah tries to escape. They catch him, and they put chains on him. The first thing they do is they bring his sons in front of him. They slaughter all of them, then put his eyes out, and then carry him to Babylon in chains. And then you go back and read the prophecies with the Pakir neck takes a creep because it's very, you read the fine print. He never saw the Babylonian captivity, though he died there. So you begin to realize you take prophecy literally. Of course, Peter told you to do that. You remember Noah got the promise by God that he'd never again destroy the world with a flood. Peter says, wait a minute, read the fine print. By water. It's going to be another flood. It'll be by fire. He tells you to read the, read the small print. So, anyway, Zedekiah. Now, Zedekiah's taken away in chains. Um, Nebuchadnezzar appoints Gedaliah as appointed governor. He's murdered by uh, Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, who is uh, of the Davidic house. Big plot, assassination. And, of course, it comes to nothing, but the rebels, the people that were involved in that mess, flee to Egypt for refuge from Nebuchadnezzar. And they force Jeremiah and Baruch, his secretary, to go with them. And that's our Jeremiah. The great irony is here is Jeremiah, who's always preached against Egypt, pro-Babylon, now forced in exile in Egypt of all places. There's a tradition that some of the men in Egypt in the town there stoned Jeremiah, there's another tra a rabbinical tradition that Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar ultimately defeats Egypt, takes Egypt over. Jeremiah predicts that. Nebuchadnezzar does. The rabbinical tradition has Nebuchadnezzar deporting Jeremiah back to Babylon after his conquest of uh, he and Baruch both back to Babylon. We're not sure exactly. We have, we still, we're lacking as much evidence as we'd like on exactly what happens to Jeremiah. There are some bizarre traditions that he ended up going to England and these traditions are all tangled up with the so-called Ten Lost Tribes. Uh, don't get don't fall into that trap. There are no Ten Lost Tribes. First of all, when the Northern House was going apostate, the faithful went south. 
So the tribes were merged anyway, but the northern kingdom was conquered by Assyria, which got conquered by Babylon, who then conquered Judah. So the, the slaves were all merged together. Proof of that is in Chronicles, but it's also, you'll notice the letters. Peter writes to the 12 tribes of Israel. And you'll find again and again the 12 tribes are treated as 12 tribes. The concept of 10 lost tribes is a fiction of literature. It is not biblical. It is contrary to God's teaching. It happens to be used by some to promote the most bizarre theology, but uh, don't fall into that trap. And I won't spend any more time with that here. Uh, let me talk a little bit about Jeremiah personally. He was the son of a guy by the name of Hilkiah, who was of a priestly family, but not in Jerusalem, in Anathoth. Now, it is believed by most scholars that this Hilkiah is the same Hilkiah that found the book of the law in the temple. We read in 2 Kings 22 that it is a priest by the name of Hilkiah that happens to find the, the book of the law, and it's, uh, I believe it's the book of Deuteronomy, in the temple. This Hilkiah is a descendant of Abiathar, which is the sole survivor of the priests of Nob from 1 Samuel 22, who after ministering to David was exiled by Solomon to Anathoth, exactly where Jeremiah was raised. Uh, he apparently had property there, according to 1 Kings 2, that is, Abiathar did. Uh, let's see, now, since Jeremiah raised Nanathoth, it's one reason he wasn't as visible for as hold of the prophetess was in Jerusalem, but that gets fixed later. He was not married. Uh, he was called in 626. He had 40 years of service as a prophet. His closest companion is Baruch, the son of uh, Neriah, who is a scribe and a secretary. And... Um, there are probably two major, several major themes besides just his personal walk and his personal passion to be faithful to God. His basic premise, I submit to you, is that only faithfulness to God can guarantee a nation's security. Only faithfulness to God can guarantee a nation's security. And his message is probably more desperately needed in our land today than most of you have the opportunity to know. The United States today is in desperate shape. We used to be, we are the first time in our history a debtor nation. Our trade deficit is several hundred billion a year where our trading partners have trading surpluses, so as time goes, they get stronger, we get weaker. Our federal budget is at a deficit, which is going to force, ultimately, hair-curling inflation and all the attendant disruption that causes. Our military predicament is more serious than we are generally allowed to understand from a very liberal press. Our Navy is facing a Navy several times its size with more advanced equipment. Our army is facing an army enormously disadvantaged. Our strategic situation is so absurd that it's to, to really get scary. We're facing a very, very serious situation. You look at this country morally, and it's a disaster. You and, and I mean, you can talk about AIDS and some of those things if you like. You can look everywhere you like. Whether you look at crime rates, morality in general, or just business practices, it's tragic. Even at the most fundamental, simple level, there is no concept of the sanctity of a commitment of any kind, be it a business contract or a marriage vow. This country is in serious, serious shape. 
because it has forgotten its covenant, the covenant upon which it was founded, the covenant that uh, God gave the beginners who settled this land, who set it up in his grace and gave him the glory and made every move throughout its history up until recent years uh, with uh, some form of acknowledgement to the, the, the God that had ordained this country. Now, our problems in this country are serious, desperate, and so on. Our answers are no different than the ones that Jeremiah had laid out by the grace of God before Judah. Judah was facing its enemies, we're facing ours. And make no mistake, they're enemies. They're armed, they're technologically sophisticated, and they are committed to a preemptive strike when they feel they can pull it off. We know that. The press won't deal with that, but uh, the experts know that. So we've got serious problems. But the answers to those problems are not defense budgets, it's not politicians, it's not elections, it's in your prayer closet, it's in getting a revival, getting this country spiritually on track again. The problems today are solved the same way as they were then. Only faithfulness to God can guarantee a nation's security. Something else that shows up in all of these things that I think, find fascinating, we constantly read about idolatry. You know, Josiah got rid of it and they came back in idolatry. And you and I tend to probably take to shrug of our shoulders because we don't think of idols as something we light candles to or kneel before. Or something. We, don't, we don't think of idolatry in its classical pagan forms. It's all over us anyway. We just need to get to recognize it perhaps more precisely. But the interesting thing is, is that idolatry is always associated with immorality. When idolatry overtakes the land, immorality followed, and vice versa. When immorality takes over the land, idolatry follows. And I don't think that formula has changed. As we understand Jeremiah better, we'll understand, we'll see with a total, totally new perception what's going on around us. Now, I will surprise most of you by getting actually into the chapter tonight. <laughs> Won't that be fun? Jeremiah. Okay, I, I, I apologize for trying to wander through all that material rather pedantically up front. You don't need to remember it all, but as we go, at least some of that will start to come together for you, I hope. And um, let's move on. Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 1. The words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, of the priests that were in Anathoth, in the land of Benjamin, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, the king of Judah, in the thirteenth year of his reign, period. The words of Jeremiah, that's strange. Let's say the word of the Lord as given to Jeremiah. He says the words of Jeremiah, and then goes on. Now, in a sense, that's convenient for us, because he doesn't limit his narrative to that, the words that the Lord gave him in its direct sense. It's the words of Jeremiah. In addition to the words that the Lord gives him, you're going to discover he's very free with autobiographical background, how he felt, what he did, and so forth, for which I think we can be grateful. Sometimes when we have just the words of the Lord per se, we sometimes wish we had more context, more perception of what was going on. In Jeremiah, that won't be too much of a problem. We're going to have an abundance of insight into the politics of the time, the context in which he's dealing, 
And perhaps most important for all of us is what was really going on in Jeremiah's life. Now, don't misunderstand me. I take the entire book as inspired. Don't misunderstand my remarks. The words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, and that's the Hilkiah that we, uh, as I mentioned, is the one that we believe was the same Hilkiah that was accredited with having found the uh, this discovering, this famous missing, you know, they, they had so forgotten the God of Israel. They actually discovered a book of the law in the temple. Now, you first think, wow, I mean, that's almost laughable. And yet that shows you how destitute they were of uh, Orthodox practices during Josiah's reign. It was his encouragement that they came back. So Josiah is a good guy, and that's when this all starts here. The priests that were in Anathoth in the land of Benjamin. Benjamin is quite a place, border of the south of Judah and to the north of Ephraim. It's the buffer state, of, if you will, between Israel and Judah. It gave us a lot of things. It gave us Saul, and it gave us two Sauls. King Saul, succeeded by David, and Saul, succeeding by himself, was Paul, Saul of Tarsus. Benjamin. Roughnecks, tough guys. Tradition of pretty aggressive characters. To whom the word of the Lord came. And that's, of course, the important issue. In the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, the king of Judah, in the thirteenth year of his reign. The word the king Josiah, even though some of his reforms obviously didn't last, didn't take hold, he's a good guy. In fact, uh, I can't help but be impressed with the product of his reign. It produced Jeremiah, it was when he came and called and prospered, in a, in a spiritual sense, and also Daniel. Bear in mind, Daniel deported as a teenager, but who, who was he impressed by? Josiah. You may not know a lot about the guy, but you can inspect his fruits. And I'd say that between Daniel, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, and whatever, we got some pretty good company. It came also in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, unto the end of the eleventh year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, unto the carrying away of Jerusalem captive in the fifth month. In other words, his words of Jeremiah from when? From these days, but also... In the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, unto the end of the eleventh year of Zedekiah, skipping ahead to the end. See, all these characters were sons of Josiah. When I went through the five kings, Josiah and then the four others, the four others were sons of, you know, their names were changed by Nebuchadnezzar and all stuff. They're all sons of Josiah. And uh, unto the carrying away of Jerusalem captive in the fifth month. And that's not the first siege, that the last siege we're talking about. There are a couple of first siege with some deportations, but the city as a lock, stock, and barrel shut down in the third siege. So this is sort of an overview, if you will, of his call and his scope. Then the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Before I formed thee, in the womb I knew thee. Before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee, and I ordained thee a prophet unto the nations. Four things there, gang. He knew, formed, consecrated, and appointed. Can you imagine God saying that to you? Before I formed thee in the womb, I knew thee. Before I formed thee. How about you? Is that true of you? I wouldn't build my case from this verse, but I can, from other places in Scripture, support the view. That God says that to you this evening. He knows how many hairs on your head are numbered. And if you're like me, that's a moving target. 
Do you know how many hairs are in your head? Do you really? I don't think so. He knows more about you than you do to a little greater level of detail. And I obviously not the trivial things like how many hairs in your head, but the trivial things he also knows. Scripture tells us. When did he know those things? He has no mass. He's not constricted with time. He's outside the time domain. So he knew those things before Genesis 1, verse 2. He knew that a long time ago. Before you sinned, before Adam sinned, he provided the remedy by making a deal with our Savior, the everlasting covenant. That deal was struck before the early verses in Genesis. But he says, Before I formed thee in the womb, I knew thee, and before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee. Whoa. What do you mean sanctified? Fancy word. Excuse the pun, a sanctimonious word. What, what do we mean by sanctified? What a fabulous word. It means, only means set aside. Set aside for holy purposes. That's all the word sanctified means. Set apart for holy service. Well, I thought he sanctified when he gets the Holy Spirit. Well, God says he must have had that when he was, before he came out of the womb. I won't build any doctrine on that one. That's just what God is saying to Jeremiah. When were you sanctified? Did God set you apart for holy service? If you've committed yourself to Jesus Christ, he has. And if you have, and he saves you, I submit he wasn't surprised. He knew that up front. How far up front? <laughs> a long time ago, before he came out of the womb. So when were you sanctified? I'm not going to get a lot of New Testament doctrine there. I'm, raise, I'm just raising questions, okay? I think I could defend in a biblical debate that you're sanctified independent of time. Because I don't think you were sanctified by something you did. I think you were sanctified by something he did. And he did it. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Jeremiah. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store and search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.